0: Welcome to Season 1 of Reclaiming Jesus Now, 10 conversations with Jim Wallace exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis, why we need to reclaim Jesus.
1: We're your host. I'm William Matthews.
0: And I'm Alison Trowbridge.
1: This will be the second of 10 weekly episodes. Today, we'll be discussing Chapter
0: 2, The Neighbor Question. So Jim, you kick off the book with the neighbor question. Why, why the neighbor question and why did you lead with this?
2: Well, let me set up the neighbor question first with a conversation I had with a lawmaker in Washington who couldn't understand why so many Christians weren't saying anything given what was happening in the country. Um, and he said, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but when all these Christians don't do or say anything, Jim, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? And that was going to be the title of the book. And now it's the first chapter leading off with these questions like the the neighbor. And and he thinks his side of the aisle uh, doesn't do much of this either, as I've often said The right gets it wrong, and the left doesn't get it. I love that. I love that. So when this new administration began, I got this question all over the world. Christians, particularly all over the world, would say, why aren't American Christians saying or doing anything in response to the first things happening in 2017? Particularly Christians of color, young people, and people who didn't know what Christians thought, but would hang their heads in confusion and disgust. So, when I was asked that question by this lawmaker, it got me to thinking, okay, what about Jesus? What about the questions he asked or prompted, and are we going to answer them right now? And as we talked in our last session, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, always ask the question, who is Jesus Christ today? So there was this lawyer who came to talk to Jesus. And he said, so how do I inherit eternal life? Which means how do I go to heaven and get saved, which is what a lot of uh, evangelical Christians want to ask. And, and Jesus said, um, well, love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty much it. Easy. That's the core. <laughs> Very. That's the core. And all of our faith traditions yeah. say something similar. So the lawyer says, okay, but the text doesn't say this, but I know he was a Washington lawyer. A
0: <laughs> hundred percent. Because
2: I know that tone of voice. So then he says, so who is my neighbor? He didn't say, oh, who is my neighbor? how can I help? He said, no. Mm. So just who is my neighbor trying to restrict what this neighbor thing meant? So Jesus tells the story, the parable of the good Samaritan, which many people know, even if they aren't religious. right? Uh, And then people take from that, well, don't be one of those religious leaders passing by doesn't stop to help. You stop, you help. Take your time. No, no. The good Samaritan story is a deeper one than that. First of all, in Judea, no Judeans would have thought any Samaritans were good. They were thought to be a mixed race, not part of us, others, with whom we don't associate. Jesus picks an other as his example of how to love your neighbor, who helps an other to him. Jesus is making the point that your neighbor is the one who's different than you. And that's the whole point of this passage. And we have a situation now where the President of the United States and his followers are saying, those people who are different from you are not your neighbors. You don't have to love. In fact, you can hate them. Hmm. You can tell them to go back where they came from. Exactly who is my neighbor? Who we love and who do we hate? That is the core question under this new political regime of Donald Trump.
1: You've quoted Martin Luther King in which he says, and so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him?
0: Ooh, that's so powerful.
1: Yeah. So here it seems like Martin Luther King, who represents, truthfully, in the American context, one of the best of us, using this story to help show Americans in the 60s in the civil rights movement, the question shouldn't be the legalist or the lawyer question, basically, how can I get out of helping my neighbor? It should be what will happen to my neighbor if I don't help him.
2: Well, Dr. King always went to the heart of things. And right now we have a political leadership saying, if these people come, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to you? So one of my colleagues, um, His mother is in a Presbyterian church in Georgia, and they're having choir practice in the morning before church. And at the end of choir practice, the choir director prays. Very typical, very common. And this time she prayed, Oh, Lord, please protect us from those caravans of those immigrants and refugees bringing smallpox and leprosy and crime and gangs Protect us from them coming to this country and help the army stop them. Oh, Lord. And my friend's mother stood up in the prayer and said, Nope, we don't lie in church.
0: Wow. What? We
2: don't lie in church.
0: Wow. We don't
2: take what Fox News says and put that into our prayers. Wow. So he's saying, here's what will happen to you if they come. Now, he's lying about all of that. But the issue here is what King said. What will happen to them? They're seeking asylum. They're facing uh, their kids being trafficked. You've been involved in trafficking, yeah. gang raped, uh, killed, and they're bringing their kids. Why would you? Why would you walk thousands of miles with your kids from Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador unless something is going to happen to you? Yeah. So it turns it around. But this gets to what I think the heart. Of the passages. Let me just read a sentence from one of my favorite theologians, Gustavo Gutierrez. Yes. He says it best. Who is my neighbor? The neighbor was the Samaritan who approached the wounded man and made him his neighbor. The neighbor is not he whom I find in my path, but rather he in whose path I place myself. He whom I approach and actively seek, that tells me you can't find your neighbor until you go outside of your path. You've seen these megachurch pastors who want to talk about loving your neighbor, and they put up a big thing on the screen, and it's eight houses, and your house is in the middle with houses all around. Of course, they're houses, not apartments. That tells you something right off the bat. How many times have you helped one of these neighbors fix their car? or babysat for their kids. Those houses could be in apartheid South Africa. They could be in uh, apartheid neighborhood US. Now, our pathways in this country have been determined by racial geography. It isn't accidental, it's purposeful, which means we don't interact with neighbors different than us. I was a little league baseball coach for 22 seasons, and every black player I ever coached in Washington, D.C. had parents who had the talk with their son or even their daughters. How to behave in the presence of police officers, what to do and not to do, what you do with your hands, your eyes, your movements, how to protect yourself. None of my white players ever had that talk with their parents.
1: Yeah. And it also goes, as an African-American, that talk extends not simply just to the police. It often extends to how to behave in the presence of other white people. Because we have often, as Black people in this country, have had to tone police ourselves because of threat of racial violence or the the fear of it. It's funny, you, you write in your book about growing up in a, a Redford township. I grew up right next to Redford Township no in Detroit. Yeah. I, when really? I was, yeah, when I was reading about that in your book, I was like, I, I grew up next to that Where? township. Wow. Seven Mile and Finkel. And so the, my first, really the first 10 years of my life in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, you know, you're talking about your experience of growing up in that area and understanding what people that are different from you are going through, like your black neighbors. In my experience, uh, my parents growing up in the 50s and the 60s, Very much, they had to police themselves around white fears, white expectations, (laughs) because it can get real serious for them. And a very simple encounter could become something much bigger. Any encounter. Any
2: encounter. So let's talk about Redford Township. Yeah. Right? So my dad is coming back from World War II. Uh, He was an engineer on a destroyer. And he came back and like all GIs, like my dad, got two things. He got a GI Bill. Yep. Free education and an FHA loan, which is your first house. Now, if you have education and a house, you're middle class. So I'm raising my hand here. My government made my family middle class. Yeah. So uh, we had this lovely neighborhood, Redford Township. Every house was a three bedroom ranch house headed by a former GI. We all walked to the nearby good school, Mason School, at five years old, safely, and, and the problem is no black GIs nope. got the GI Bill or got the FHA loan. So no black sailors on my dad's ship got anything uh-huh. like our family got. Our neighborhoods were structured by policy to make sure none of our neighbors were black. So again, coaching baseball, I see it all the time. When parents, moms especially, dads too, but moms, when moms sit and talk, about their hopes and fears for their children. It's very bonding. But when 75% of white people in America, this is today, have not one relationship with a person or family of color in their social circles, moms aren't talking about their kids across racial lines. Mm. So this racial geography is systemic. And one of the reasons it is is because when people actually are neighbors, and this isn't just, you have a black friend at the office at the water cooler, you know, who do you have dinner with? Who do your kids play with play dates, birthday parties? Who do you talk about your health with? Who do you talk about the real stuff in your life with when that is, are people different than you? which. Jesus here is saying, that's what you do. Then you begin to love your neighbor. So I've always said my worldview has been most changed by being in places I was never supposed to be. And with people I was never supposed to meet or know, or certainly become friends with. Mm. That's what's changed my life over and over again. So in that white neighborhood, white church, white school, white world, I'm now becoming 15, 16. I'm listening to my city. I'm reading the papers, hearing the news, talking to people. And these questions come up. How come everybody I know has a job, or at least their dad had a job in those days? And I'm hearing about people who don't have jobs. Uh, We're not rich, we're middle class, but we've never been hungry. I'm hearing about people who are hungry. I don't know anybody who's been to jail, but I'm hearing about people who have been to jail. How come our life is so different in white America from what I'm hearing than lives of people just a few miles or blocks away in black America? How come this is happening? Something very big seemed very wrong to me as a teenage kid, and nobody would talk about it. In my white world, church or school, nobody talk about it. And they said, you're too young to ask those questions. When you get older, you'll understand, or we don't know why it is that way, but it's always been that way. The only honest answer I got was, son, if you keep asking these questions, you're going to get in lots of trouble. And that would be true. Cause I said, I'm not getting answers to my questions. So I mm-hmm. tell young people and listen, if you're a young person, listen to this more than anything else, trust your questions and follow them to wherever you have to go to get them answered. So I went into the city back in those days in Detroit when no white people would go into the city. So I went in and got, I needed money for college. So I got low income, low paying jobs alongside young black men who were my age or older, who had grown up in a very different way than me. And I took those jobs to be alongside those young men to begin to get my questions answered that I wasn't getting answered in my white world. And I tell the story in the book about my friend Butch. We were fellow janitors at Detroit Edison, uh, and we both were young, strong guys who liked to be able to lift the heaviest desks and show that we could do that. So we got <laughs> called in for that all the time. And I realized that Butch and I were young men, we were born in Detroit, but we grew up in different countries. side by side. So, what you're saying about the encounters black Americans have with police, with employers, with coworkers, with just people on the street are always have to be calculated. So, he took me home to meet his mother. His father had passed, and we're talking about the police. And she's a loving mom, like my mom was, worried about her kids, not political, not militant, like he and I are both becoming. She said this, so I tell my kids, uh, if you're lost and can't find your way home and you see a policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind the building, wait till he passes, and then come out and find your way home. When she said that, I heard my mother's words echo in my head, What she'd tell us five kids, if you're ever lost and can't find your way home, look for a policeman. The policeman is your friend. He'll take you by the hand and bring you home. But if I hadn't gone outside my path, I never would have learned any of that. You won't find your neighbor, as Jesus defines this, unless you go outside your path. And our pathways are deliberately, by policy, racially, Mm. economically, religiously segregated. So to love our neighbor requires us to disrupt our pathways.
0: Jim, you write in the book that by twenty forty five America will be a majority of minorities. Can you talk a bit about this rise of white nationalism that's begun happening in America, or maybe is is starting to unearth itself and and how the current administration has really played on? those those sentiments, that racism, those fears, and kind of where it's gotten us as as far as the church is concerned.
2: This is the elephant in the room in American politics. Underneath almost all of our issues now is this fundamental change in demographics in this country. By twenty forty five we'll be for the first time no longer a white majority nation. We'll be a majority of minorities. And there's a strategy that is deliberate in this country at the highest levels. The demography is changing, and no one, as hard as they try, they can't change that. But they want to prevent changing demography from changing our democracy. So this is right at the heart of Jesus' neighbor question, who your neighbors are. I'm saying this crisis we're in is a crisis about the soul of the nation, and the integrity of faith. What kind of nation are we? Who do we want to be? Who are we becoming? And what does faith say about that? Who, this transition to a brand new nation, who's going to navigate that? Who's going to provide some moral compass to that? The body of Christ, the name of the church around the world, is the most diverse human community on the face of the planet if we took Jesus seriously, seeking our neighbor by disrupting our pathways, that could change everything in this country, because that's at the heart of immigration policy, uh, gerrymandering, voter suppression, criminal justice. At the heart of all of these issues is the elephant in the room that we're becoming a much more diverse nation. So this This story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying your neighbor is the other, the other. And what's happening in our country from political leadership and economic and the rest is don't like the other, fear the other, hate the other, keep the other away from us. So this neighbor question is at the heart of what's going on in this country, the moral choices we have to make. Are we going to fear and hate the other, as the President of the United States is saying every day? Or do we see the other as our neighbor that we must seek, seek out, and listen to if we're going to love our neighbor? This who is my neighbor question, to me, is morally central to the whole issue we're facing now with Muslim bans, with Separating children from their parents, and what the response to that was, from people around the country.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing that I think surprised me most about your book, Jim, is that you go for the jugular. You go in on some of these current pressing issues, and and you name names, and you call out political leaders, you call out responses of the church, and. A lot of these situations and I didn't expect this book to be quite so timely. And what I found um, just in my own personal reflections reading it is because the current political situation has been so nasty and and so bifurcated and divisive, the last year I feel like emotionally, mentally, I've almost stepped out of it at times and just said, I turned off notifications on my phone. I don't turn on the evening news anymore. It just, it felt so toxic. But also reading this, and as someone who's spent the last decade working on social justice issues, you have a line where you say the opposite of loving your neighbor is not always hating them, but just being indifferent to them. And that just was a powerful, like, conviction punch in the gut for me because I think my own culpability in this has been when I've not stood up on these issues that I think we as people of faith ought to be launching a rally cry around these issues that affect the most vulnerable and the most oppressed among us.
2: Pope Francis talks about the globalization of indifference, because you're exactly right. When we say, well, I'm not involved in that, I don't think that, do that, I don't hate those people. Uh, Even turning off, even saying, I have to pull back, that's only an option for people who are okay. It's the most extreme form of privilege. Yes. So people who are worried about their family surviving until dinner if they're an immigrant family or parents who are worried about every encounter their black children have in white America at every socioeconomic level, that fear is felt if you're an African American parent, uh, they can't withdraw. They have to deal with this every single day. It's a matter of survival for themselves and their kids. So if we withdraw, it means that we're being, your word is right. And it's, it's Francis where it's indifferent. Yeah. So how do we, when the other, the other is being used as the principal political strategy of Donald Trump running against the other. He, if you listen, he's running against mm. the immigrants, asylum seekers, African-American, brown, black women from Congress. He's running against the other. So I would say he's developed a political strategy of running against the one Jesus calls our neighbor. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like
1: in my experience as a black American, I have found that some of the only people collectively interested in an integration project are black and brown people. Like when you go to seminars, you know, and the questions I'm hearing black and brown people ask is, how can we have full citizenship, full voting rights? How can we live in equitable neighborhoods and, and adjust like peaceable society? Not just for black people. They're asking that for
0: for everyone.
1: everyone. And so I felt like I was sold on the dream of, Integration, you know, living growing up in a post uh, segregation world, uh, my parents grew up in that. And we were taught as children, like, you should want good for you, but also good for your neighbor and seek common good for all people. And I feel like, even particularly, black women are some of the most pragmatic people in terms of like wanting that common good. And Mm. I don't see a lot of strong, even nationalism inside of the black community. I mean, it's, there's aspects of it, but it's really, it's like, okay, what works for all of us? And one of the most disheartening things watching this current administration and also the support that he garners is, feels like an outright rejection of the neighbor, of the people that they don't have to care about, whether it's the the right. privileged thing of being able to turn off your notifications. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I'll even do that sometimes because I'm like, it's, it just feels when it's coming at you so much, it feels yeah, so much. And, yeah. then it, and then for me, it's like, I look at it and I'm going, this just triggers my anxiety yeah. because not just from an existential abstract area, but I'm going, I can't watch another black kid get killed by the police. I mean, more of these do I like, it just comes across my timeline and I just scroll away quickly. Cause I go, I, I just can't even emotionally take this in again because then it feels like my, my blackness is being traded as like fodder for mm. like, People to like, you know, even try to like work up rage around, and it's like, this is this like deeply impacts me, and it's on my timeline just as like celebrity gossip news, like it's this in the same breath, and I'm going, I, it it makes that's where I get shut down. So for me, if it's a lot more of a, I. If I just if I take all this in, I'm just you know James Baldwin said to be black and relatively conscious to, is to be in a constant state of rage, <laughs> and so I'm like if I don't even remotely want to stay in a constant state of rage just to function in life, I feel like I have to distance. So I can't even imagine how anyone like how anyone else feels around. I know how I feel around it. Yeah. I'm like I, don't, I, don't, I get why you turn it off. I want to turn it <laughs> off too.
0: But it, you know I'll I'll never forget when when Trump first won and I was kind of in the throes of reactions to that. Someone said to me, "Well, just just wait. It's going to be fine. Your day to day life is not going to change at all." And that that is just the heart of of privilege and of of being able to be indifferent and disconnect. And I think that that is you know going back to this idea of crisis being danger and opportunity the opportunity of the American church is to not become indifferent indifferent at such a propitious moment in history where so much is at stake for so many vulnerable people.
2: If white Christians are being indifferent to the other and you have a political administration that is targeting the other, the other is in deep, deep trouble. So it's indeed... It's whether we're going to love our neighbor. It's what the lawyer asked. Who is your neighbor is the right question. They are targeting the one Jesus calls the neighbor, which is the one different from you. Yeah, That's what he's saying here. Don't just be nice to the people who live around you or go to church with you. Being nice to them is a good thing. It might make you a better person to be a little nicer to who's ever around you. But it's not what the Good Samaritan is teaching here. Your neighbor is the one who's not in your path. So if you're indifferent, and you're in your path which has been created for you, your path has been created, why are our churches so segregated? our economy, our housing, that's the intention, that you never will meet Mm. the one called the neighbor. And you'll never have that conversation with about your kids and their kids. So, the separation of children, okay, let's take that as an example here. This administration decided to separate migrant children from their parents, including toddlers and infants and babies. They did that as a matter of policy to frighten and scare people from not coming. And when that separation of children, caused this enormous reaction around the country because they were counting on white people to be indifferent. Yeah. They were um, counting on wow. white people to be indifferent so we can do this because they'll be indifferent. Wow. All of a sudden, all over the country, there was a pushback.
0: Rallies. Moral outrage, yeah. Moral
2: outrage and vigils that we were yeah. helping to organize all across the country. And what I was really struck by was all of the white young couples who came out to those rallies with their children. They brought their little kids with them to those rallies. And what they were saying, I think a lot of them intuitively was, wait a minute, these migrant children are our children too. That was the pushback and that's the hope and the invitation. So when um, women went to their mega churches in Texas, and had a different bumper sticker on their own cars. They all have their own cars. And their husbands and patches got mad that they weren't having cruise stickers on their cars. And they asked, why are you doing this? They said, well, we care about children at the border as well as children in the womb. And that broke up the whole conversation. Mm. So when when white Christians, white people say, wait a minute, these are our kids too. You can't do to these kids... We wouldn't let you do it to our kids. So we're saying those are our kids, too. That's, and the first time Trump had to retreat when that happened. Now he's still doing it in all kinds of other ways. Yeah, he definitely is doing, he's doing it. In, but there was a response. Yeah. And he believed we would all be indifferent to it. And then a lot of people weren't. And that pushed back. So that's invitation. That's call. That's how do we go outside our pathways and be proximate to the people he's attacking and say, these are the people Jesus said you have to love as your neighbor. That's your vocation.
0: The thing that most ha- has most shocked and confused me by the Trump presidency and his campaign was how he made... The, so much of the heart of the Gospels is this loving your neighbor, and and the person who is different from you. And so much of Trump's campaign towards the evangelical base was around fear of the other, and a pushing out and a building walls and anti-immigration and and anti. Um, any of the basically anything that was related to to loving the vulnerable, the marginalized, the press, the least of these. And so how has that so resonated with a portion of the American church? and how is he able to rally so many white evangelical voters? That's been something I've not been able to wrap my head around.
2: Well, um, I'm calling for a shift of neighbors here a shift in who our neighbors are, which is right what Jesus told us to do. Uh, But when you're only in your pathway, when after a phone call, after the election, a phone call I had with evangelical leaders, white evangelical leaders said, we didn't vote for Donald Trump because of his use of racial bigotry. We voted for him because of other issues that we were concerned about and a black evangelical woman said right there on the phone, so racial bigotry isn't a deal-breaker for you yep, or your constituency. And it's not, because in that world of whiteness, which is assumed to be normal, what does it mean when you're in the body of Christ and there's no one who doesn't look like you? That's not the church. That literally isn't the church, which was meant deliberately and did in the beginning. To overcome our primary divisions in the world race, class, and gender. We'll get to that with Galatians later on. But that was our, part of our vocation. Now, when we have been culturally conformed to our racial and religious and economic geography, uh, our neighbors in the body of Christ are not even in our midst. And so, you know, my experience is that when people get proximate to other people, like I did to butch and his family you learn stuff you listen you pay attention you understand what that mom's fears for her kids are every encounter as you said yeah uh, and that changes how you think about the world but if you're only in a world that thinks and looks like you you're just not going to understand Jesus question who is my neighbor
1: yeah i think my biggest fear is as someone that has often been in white evangelical circles and have had deep, meaningful relationships with people in those spaces. Some of my experience in fear is people getting proximate relationships and still choosing ignorance and still choosing like a willful. And I, part of my fears, I wonder if um, some of this is, is like a doubling down of like, Oh, actually we do have a number of people do live in some measure of a multi ethnic church, or they do have a, Black person in their life, not the majority, but a lot do. And I I felt like I watched some of those people still go, yeah, but it, it wasn't a deal breaker. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that almost for me, I'm going to use a very strong word here. <laughs> that almost feels a little apostate. In a sense of like, you've been given opportunity time and time again to choose inclusion and to choose like a multiracial coalition or some type of, you know, and you're still not choosing it.
2: Yeah, when the church doesn't love their neighbors and doesn't even know any neighbors, as Jesus describes who our neighbors are, those different than us, and doesn't even have any members in their church who are different than them. Is it apostate? Yeah. It's heresy. It's disobedience to what Jesus taught. So the question is, are we going to give back to Jesus or not? The one who's different than you. That's who your neighbor is. So if we're paying no attention to that, we're just disobeying Jesus and just stop calling ourselves followers of Jesus. It's pretty simple. I mean, apostate or heretical or theoretical terms that, sure, that that's radical and sounds, I agree. But it's whether we're going to be obedient to Jesus or not. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Yeah. That's flat out. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I tell you? He says, Love your neighbor, and the neighbors are one different than, than you. So stop calling me Lord and not doing these things. To me, it's as simple as that.
1: Yeah. It's like the Amos thing too, right? It's like because you don't do justice, like I don't like your worship songs. <laughs> He's like away
2: I'm with them. For a worship <laughs> right, yeah. Well well. <laughs> I, I was preaching in a church, very big, charismatic church in South Africa most famous Pentecostal church. And they really had good music. And I got to preach, and I was preaching on on Amos, and I put it on the screen. I said, I really loved your noise this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! It was really good noise. Some of the best (laughs) noise I've ever heard. But listen to what Amos says. Uh, Take away from me the noise of your worship, but let justice roll down like waters Mm. and righteousness, like an ever flowing stream. And because he was a Pentecostal, the pastor said do an altar call. So the altar call, the end was those who want to go from noise to letting justice roll down like waters, please come forward. And they had to move the stage back because so many people came forward. So let's, all I'm saying is let's be biblical. If we say we're people who love the Bible, let's listen to what the Bible says.
1: Hmm. Um, and I, I wonder where we are in, in that tension too, just from my experience. And I've seen both. I've seen people respond really well to proximate relationship. And then I've seen some people, it forces them to run even harder, like and go some of the most fringy, uh, right wing people that I know have spent significant time in black communities.
2: Well, there was a pastor who last week took his megachurch uh, down on the border and then he, he said, we have relationship with refugees or immigrants. And then he praised the policies of the administration on immigration and said these detention centers are like summer camps for kids. Now, you can keep pulling bodies out of the river. At some point, you got to go upstream and see who is throwing them in. So if we're not concerned about why... People are being treated the way they are. Uh, we're just where we're just. That's not relationship. Yeah. Uh, you may have some uh, some uh, uh, stories you can tell about how you met somebody, or somebody meets in your church, but we're talking about the people that Jesus says are our neighbor. That's what the text says. So I'm going to keep going back to the gospel here, because people can have all their politics, but. When Jesus says, the way you treat the stranger, the word there means immigrant. It means refugee. It's 96 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's all over the New Testament. It's in Matthew 25, which we'll get to later. That's how you treat me. Now this is more than, uh, we can have good debates on what's a good immigration reform policy. That's fine. But how we are treating the stranger is a test of our relationship to God. That's what it is. How we are loving those who Jesus, are our neighbors, that's a test of our relationship to God. So give me all your political debates. That's fine. I'm happy to have them. But how we are targeting the other is contrary to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And anyone who names his name better have an answer to that question.
0: You have a great line where you say these are religious issues, not merely political ones.
2: Well, we always want to say uh, that, well, we have different political views. And I think differences in political philosophies, what's the best function for a government? How does civil society play a role? Uh, What should government do? What should other sectors do? These are good, fine philosophical questions. But if we are... If we are calling on the fear and hatred and violence toward our neighbor, toward the stranger, we are disobeying the teaching of Jesus. So let's separate out political, philosophical, good debate. I don't want us all to think the same things about politics. I've been around politics. Uh, And a lot of us are stuck in these left-right binaries, you know, Uh, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. I keep saying, and I'll keep saying again, how do we go deeper here than how politics defines this? I want to be defined by Jesus' questions. I want to have to answer his questions. And I want to say, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, you have to answer these questions. Whatever you answer them, you got to answer them. And a lot of people who are disgusted, young people at the churches for what they're doing and not doing who check the none of the above because they don't want to affiliate with us. They want to know what Jesus thinks about this. And generally a lot of them like it. A lot of them like what they hear Jesus saying.
0: So for someone listening to this, to this show seeking to follow Jesus in matters of immigration, migration issues around safe Haven for people who are vulnerable, what, what ought that, or what should, could that response look like uh, for someone asking the, the so what question to this very pressing issue?
2: Well, when I quoted my, my, uh, one of my mentors, Gustavo Gutierrez, before, he just says this, um, uh, I have to place myself uh, in a different pathway. You can't stay in your path and love your neighbor because your neighbors are outside your path. So what does that mean if you're stuck in this racial, ethnic, cultural, socio-economic bubble? It's not just you should have a different political view. You don't even know who your neighbors are. Yeah. You don't, So what does it mean to disrupt our pathways and go where we're not supposed to be me, people we're not supposed to even know or certainly treat as a neighbor, this is deeper than just having a little bit of different economic immigration policy. This is really, we are not embracing our neighbors as Jesus defined who they are, people who are different than us. That is the test of being a neighbor here. So, so that, that's a practical thing, than just you know watching a different network or reading different newspapers. This is about who we are in relationship to and who we're not. So last question, how do we,
1: what are some practical steps to do good relationship?
2: When the Muslim ban was proposed and put forward, now has passed, you had refugees on their way to churches, even evangelical churches. And wherever that happens, or wherever uh, churches you said are supposed to be sanctuaries, it has changed the people in those churches. It has changed them. I could tell story after story about relationship with Muslims, with refugees, with immigrants. Immigrants, many are fellow Christians. (laughs) Pentecostal pastor who gets... Uh, threatened with deportation in Southern California, the book talks about this at length. And um, Christians gathered together and 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 had a save him from ice. That cha- it didn't just change his life; it changed the lives of the people who were organizing ar- around that. So, if we act on these things, Jesus asked about his questions. It'll change us. We, we, we you following Jesus changes you right? So I'm just saying, Hear the questions. Who is my neighbor? Answer the question, not just in your head, but in your heart and in your steps, your footsteps. Walk this way and you'll be transformed. I mean, where I walked into the alleged inner city as a teenage boy changed my life forever. And when Christians, when, when people, uh, find out that 40% of homeless street kids are LGBTQ and they go out of the streets and they meet those kids, if they have a relationship with them, it'll change their lives. So we prevent ourselves from even having any contact with the ones Jesus says are our neighbors, the ones different than we are. So this isn't just a sort of a uh, a theological affirmation this is how we decide to live our lives who we're in relationship to uh, i had a i spoke at a fundraiser uh, recently there's a program in dc around the country called safe families my church helped to start it and joy and i were the were the first family that you just take kids foster kids who are in trouble and you help to keep them in their families when you got a single parent who doesn't have any help, and ours had medical issues, and she lost her kids to foster care. And so we just took these two little girls for periods of time, and, um, and uh, it, we got them back with mom, and got a house, and they're doing great, and they're still friends, they come over all the time. And I said to these funders, I said, this program works, it keep, gets kids out of foster care, it gets them in families, it changes their lives, but I don't want you to just fund this because it works. I want you to engage in this program because most of you, most of you have no relationship to the people you say you care about. You don't know any of these people. You don't have any personal relationship. And if you let these kids into your house uh, and your schedule, it will interrupt your life and your schedule. Most of us need to be interrupted by people who Jesus says are our neighbors. So this is a matter of not just believing, but acting on what Jesus says. And that means proximity. It means relationship. It means being interrupted by the facts of their lives that they can't withdraw from.
0: The music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own William Matthews.
1: Reclaiming Jesus Now is brought to you by Sojourners, faith in action for social justice.
0: Podcast produced by Paul Woodhull from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris Latondres.
1: To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net.
0: That's book.sojo.net.
1: And if you like what you heard today, please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review.
0: That makes sense all the difference. Thanks for listening.
2: This is Jim Wallace. God bless you.